0: We're going to read some scripture. You can follow along. This is from Ephesians chapter 2, and this is verses 4 through 10. Uh, Some familiar verses, but uh, let's read them this morning uh, from the pen of the Apostle Paul. He writes, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's, let's pray together, shall we this morning? Lord, as we just sung this uh, song about our dependence upon you, uh, Lord, we echo the truth that we, we need you. Uh, we not only need you for uh, salvation, but we need you every day of our life, uh, to give us strength, uh, to guide us and direct us. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have this morning to, uh, to be here, uh, Lord, to worship you, to encourage one another. Lord, we thank you for our um, missionary family at Community Bible Church and for those that we have the privilege of partnering with, not only here in the United States, but in many places around the world to share the good news of the gospel. Lord, we pray your blessing upon each one of them. And Lord, now I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds Uh, to what you have for us today. May we be encouraged. Uh, May we leave here this morning being amazed again at your grace in our life. And we will thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Well, our East Coast friends are getting a little bit of snow this weekend, and we kind of dodged that one. And I've noticed... It's cold even down in Florida, and a couple days ago, uh, I saw for southern Florida, and this is a a real thing, um, they had an iguana falling warning. So what happens in southern Florida, that if a temperature gets below 40 degrees, the iguanas and the trees uh, lose their grip, and and they fall, and so the warning was, uh, don't park under the trees in southern Florida, you may get hit with an iguana. Uh, I remember a number of years ago, we were down in Winter Haven, Florida, visiting my in-laws. Uh, we're going to their church, Faith Baptist Church in Winter Haven, Florida, and, and they had been through an unusual cold snap. Uh, and it was January, and there was just a little bit of ice on, uh, on the, the parking lot in the entryway. And as we pulled up, I noticed some of the men in the church had gotten, uh, salt shakers from the kitchen, and they were out, you know, salting, the ice, so um, so. Pray for those Florida people, and uh, you know all those pictures of we're down here enjoying the warmth. Well, at least for a day, they're not. But uh, that sounds like revenge, doesn't it? Uh, hey, we've been looking at the Book of Joshua, and we're going to continue our study in the, in the Book of Joshua. A couple of weeks ago, we gave an introductory message and just kind of gave an overview of this this book. Uh, written by Joshua 3,400 years ago. So we're looking at a piece of ancient literature. And we looked at uh, just the overview of the book, that the book's about conquering the land and finally fulfilling the promise of of the Abrahamic covenant. Not only was that promise that Jesus would come through the line of Abraham and David, but the Abrahamic covenant also was a piece of land. And now, uh, hundreds of years after the Abrahamic covenant, Uh, The the nation of Israel is uh, on the edge of the Jordan River and they're ready to go into the land under a new leader by the name of Joshua. And so the book of Joshua is all about land, the words used 87 times in the book it's about conquering and general Joshua uh leads the charge and they have a central campaign, a northern campaign, a southern campaign and uh they they conquer the land and uh, that's uh what the book of Joshua is all about. And last week we looked at uh verses 6 through 9 and a message entitled Instructions for Victorious Living. Because God comes to General Joshua and he he gives him some words of encouragement as they're about to enter into a new lifestyle of military warfare. And first of all, he says, I want you to be strong and courageous. Uh, Joshua, be strong and courageous because I'm with you. And Joshua, uh, I want you to obey everything I've told you. Don't depart from the right or the left and you will be blessed. Joshua, don't be discouraged and don't be afraid. And we looked at those four phrases and thought how that applies to our lives today, no matter what we're facing. Most of us aren't facing military warfare, but there's a spiritual battle going on, and we need to be strong and courageous, we need to be obedient, we need to not be discouraged, and we need to not be afraid. Well, that brings us to where we want to start this morning, and it's Joshua chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to to Joshua chapter 2. And we're going to look at a message entitled, Amazing Grace, the Story of Rahab. Maybe the most all-time favorite beloved hymn of the church is that hymn that was written by John Newton, uh, that slave trader that came to faith in Christ. He wrote it in 1779, uh, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. And there are a lot of our hymns in our hymn book that talk about uh, grace and uh, the amazing grace that God has given us, uh, grace that's greater than all our sin. Uh, and, and so we're going to think about God's grace this morning through the lens of the life of Rahab. Someone has once said that we're going to have a couple surprises when we get to heaven. One of the surprises we'll have is who is not there. There's probably going to be some people that we expected to be in heaven. And remember, Jesus said those words and I think it was Matthew 25, depart from me, I never knew you. And people said, well, I did all sorts of great things in your name. I never had a personal relationship with you. So who's not there? But we'll also be surprised by who is in heaven. <laughs> and one of the persons that the Old Testament details for us that is going to be there is a lady by the name of Rahab, it's an amazing story because Rahab is a Gentile, Rahab is a Canaanite, Rahab is a prostitute. The Bible calls her a harlot, we would call her a streetwalker today. And and Rahab's story is found here in in Joshua chapter 22, and it's a story of God's amazing grace in her life, and in ours as well. Now, Rahab's mentioned three times in the New Testament. She's mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, in part of the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab is part of the descendants of, of or the ancestors of, of Jesus. A lot of times we like to go back and look at our genealogy and we discover, oh, I'm related to this famous person. And it kind of makes us feel good and encouraged. Well, in Jesus' genealogy, here, right right there in Matthew chapter 1-5 is, is Rahab. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, that great chapter, the Hall of Faith, the author of Hebrews is listing all those great men and women of faith. And we read through the, their names, and here they are, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Prostitute? Yeah, she's there in the hall of faith. James chapter 2 talks about Rahab as an example of someone whose faith was demonstrated by her works and by her action. So let's jump into uh, Joshua chapter 2. And we'll discover uh, the story of Rahab this morning, and then we'll look at three or four uh, truths that will hopefully encourage our hearts this morning by way of uh, application from this uh, story, uh, this narrative from Joshua chapter 2. So we're going to run through our outline, and uh, here's point number one from verse number one. It's the reconnaissance, the reconnaissance. The letter, uh, the word spy would have been a lot easier to spell, but it doesn't go with my, uh, alliteration of the letter R. So we went with reconnaissance and, uh, had to look up in the dictionary how to spell it. So I think I've got the right spelling there. But here it is. The reconnaissance mission, uh, verse one. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. This is fascinating uh, because this is about 40 years after Joshua himself was a spy. And 40 years earlier when the Israelites were in Kadesh Barnea and God wanted them to go into the land. Remember that Moses sent 12 spies and uh, Joshua and Caleb were the only ones that said, Hey, God's given us this land, let's do it. Now, 40 years later, uh, Joshua's in charge, and he sends out two spies secretly. Israel's encamped near the Jordan River, and they cross the Jordan River, and he says, check out the land, especially Jericho. And the text tells us that they uh, somehow get into the city and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So this is an intelligence-gathering mission. Uh, They're ready to go into military mode, and remember that the the land of Canaan was consisted of about 30 walled cities. There was not a unified government. There was about 30 walled cities. Each one had a king. And now Jericho is staring uh, the nation of Israel straight in the face as they're about ready to cross over the Jordan River. And so they are on a recognizant spy mission to find out what Jericho is like to report back to General Joshua. Now we do this today, don't we? Every major military country uh spies on each other. They do it in a much more sophisticated way. We have uh, satellites all over, and all, all the countries major countries of the world do and uh, they're watching. How do we know that there's 100,000 plus Russian troops on the border of Ukraine this morning because we've got satellites and we've seen them moving and positioning themselves and it's got the world's attention. What's going to happen? Is Russia going to invade Ukraine? Um, how do we know that? Because we've, we've got these satellites. Well, back 3,400 years ago, they spied the old-fashioned way and uh, Joshua sends these two individuals in and the text tells us that they end up at Rahab's house, they might think and ask the normal question like, "How did they choose Rahab? How did they, or why did they end up at Rahab's house, which was right on the the wall of uh, of Jericho there?" And the Bible's silent on that, so we just have to have some speculation and say that in the providence of God and God's sovereignty, somehow. He directed these two spies and we don't know their names, they're not named. He directed these spies to Rahab's house. And the text in uh, Joshua chapter 2 verse 1 says they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now some have speculated uh, that this Hebrew word that's translated prostitute in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, has a secondary meaning and interpretation. And some commentators say, well, another interpretation of this Hebrew word is innkeeper. And so they try to soften this story and say that Rahab was simply the innkeeper in Jericho. Well, when we go to Hebrews chapter 11 and when we go to James chapter 2, both of those texts talk about the prostitute Rahab and the meaning in the Greek word there, there's no ambiguity there. Rahab was a prostitute, was a harlot. And uh, these two spies uh, end up at the house of Rahab. Now let's look at the request by the king as we just kind of work through this this story and this narrative in, in verses 2 and 3. Uh, it says, The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent out this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. And so... Uh, uh, Jericho was not a very large city it It was a walled city, but uh we'll get to the story of you know Israel walking around the walls of of Jericho they 've done some archaeological digs. Jericho was about ten to twelve acres of land. Now our church sits on seventeen acres of land. It was not a very very large city; it was a walled, strong city. And when two spies come in, it did not go unnoticed, and it's reported to the king of Jericho, there's some spies there that have come in, and we've seen them go into Rahab's house, and uh, the king says to Rahab, hey, uh, bring them out, uh, because we we know that they're here to spy out the land. And this brings us to the moral dilemma of Rahab. What's Rahab going to do? And so let's look at uh, the response of Rahab uh, in verses 4 through 7. But Rahab had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. Parentheses, verse 6. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men sent out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So here's um, here's Rahab's response when the king says, Bring out those spies. We know you have them. We saw them in your house. Rahab's faced with a moral dilemma. Does she tell the truth and put the spy's life at risk? Or does she manipulate the truth and shade the truth? Does she basically lie? And it's very obvious when you read the text what Rahab chose to do. Rahab chose to mislead them and send them off in another direction on a wild goose chase. And so for years and years, the commentators and um, people have gone into discussion like, was that the right thing to do? Or did, did God honor Rahab's lie? I mean, after all, she's in the, the hall of faith. And So let me just read you quickly uh, from the, one of the study Bibles, um, their uh, commentary on what Rahab did, and, and then we'll move on. Uh, this is from the Nelson Study Bible. The Bible clearly condemns lying. That's, that's all through Scripture. But what about Rahab? In Rahab's case, there are three possibilities. Either her lie was not a sin, or it was a sin but excusable, or it was a sin and it was inexcusable. Those who say her lie was not a sin will sometimes say they believe that the the loving thing is all that matters. A little lie told in the name of love is no sin. It is the right thing to do. Others have said that Rahab's sin was excusable because of a greater value, the lives of the spies. In Rahab's case, the necessity of preserving the lives of the spy had a higher value than truth. They say she did the right thing in misdirecting the king's men because it was more important to save their lives than to tell the king's men where they were. The third possibility is that a lie is a lie and that even Rahab's actions were wrong. So we're going to take a vote now. No, we won't take a vote. We won't take a vote. Here's, Here's what Nelson Bible has to say. We must be careful to make a distinguish between Rahab's faith and the way Rahab expressed it. The Bible praises Rahab because of her faith, not because of her line. It was Dr. Bob Jones Sr. that made a statement. He said, it is never right to do wrong in order to do right. It's never right to do wrong in order to do right. And one commentator writes this, to argue that the two spies would have perished if Rahab had been truthful, is to ignore the option that God could have protected the spies in some other way. The lie of Rahab was recorded but not approved. So we need to remember when we read Scripture, just because Scripture records a narrative and records an action doesn't mean that God approves it. And so uh, Rahab lies, and she misdirects. Now we need to maybe give Rahab some grace. We're going to find out that she's a new believer. We're going to find out that, that, that she's a, a new, new believer in this God, Jehovah. and uh, But uh, the response of Rahab was to lie. Well... Let's look at uh Rahab's recognition of the true God Jehovah. And th- this this is exciting because this is this is Rahab's uh statement of faith and statement of belief. Um earlier this week, um our oldest grandson Shane, and he's he's nine years old, and uh he, he asked me, he says, uh, Grandpa, are you a Christian? if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? I thought that was a good question from a old. Are you a Christian if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? And here's what I told Shane. I said, well, you have to believe that, but guess what? You also have to receive that. Uh, it's not just intellectual head knowledge, knowing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but it's what personally receiving that and, and personally uh, accepting the, the the gift. And so, yes, you need to know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but you also need to what embrace it by faith and and endorse endorsing the check and cashing it and saying, yes, this is for me. And so, um, we need to be careful when we're trying to think about as a. Person, what makes a person a Christian? It's not walking an aisle. It's not raising a hand. It's not signing a card. What it is, is when, when a person's heart belief and faith is put in Jesus and Jesus alone to be their Savior and their sin bearer, and God sees our hearts, and, and He's ultimately the only one that knows. And so here's, uh, here's Rahab, and uh, here's how... Uh, is her recognition of the true God Jehovah? Let's look at it in verse eight. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them. So here it is. She's already misdirected the king's men. Uh, these spies are up on the on the roof on the wall of Jericho. They're hiding under these stalks of flax, which are about three or four feet long. And before they go to sleep for the night, here's what Rahab said thirty four hundred years ago. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt 40 years ago. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. That was more recently um, that had happened in the last several weeks, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. That's quite a declaration of faith from a a Gentile Canaanite prostitute. She says, I know that your God is the true God. And what's interesting here, when you you read through verses 8 through 11, and and the two um, verses that I want to point out and the words are uh, the word Lord in verse 9 and the word Lord in verse 10. And and in my Bible, which is the NIV Bible, uh, the word Lord there is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And when that uh, capital letters are used for the word Lord, uh, she is using the word yahweh that's that's the that's the personal uh significant uh, name covenant name of god when when she says i know that uh, the lord has given you that land she said i know that yahweh i know that your god yahweh is the the true god she uses the word yahweh you know sometimes when um, we hear people talk, and maybe, um, maybe it's somebody on television, and, and they're given a uh, some sort of testimony of something that happened—a sports athlete or something. Sometimes you can kind of tell a little bit about maybe where they are and their understanding of who God is by the term that they use for God. And uh, I've, I've seen some interviews where uh, maybe an athlete wants to give credit to God for something, and they'll say, well, you know, the man upstairs helped me. <laughs> I'm like, okay, the man upstairs, all right. I've also heard some athletes give testimony and praise to God, and they'll say this, I want to give thanks to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for all he's done for me. Now there's a difference between the two, and ultimately God is, God is a judge, but, but sometimes you can kind of get a sense of where a person is at by the, the term that they use and how they talk about God. And, and this is one of the clues that tells us that, that Rahab has made a true conversion of faith. A lot of commentators believe that she made that conversion and, and belief long before the spies got there. She had heard about the God and the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, and she heard about what the Israelites had done recently, and and uh, her faith was in, um, in God himself. Well, that leads us to Rahab's request. After she makes this um, commitment, this recognition of the true God Jehovah, she makes a request to the two spies. Verses 12 through 14. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. So now Rahab's, Rahab knows that uh, Jericho's days are limited and she's she's kind of doing some reciprocal bargaining here with the two spies. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, And that you will save us from death. She's she's convinced that that Jericho's time is limited. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And so here's Rahab's request. When you come and take down Jericho, will you show kindness to me? it's uh, that word translated kindness is this hebrew word hesed it's all through the bible and it's it's hard to really pinpoint the, the exact meaning of hesed it's used 250 times but it but it means uh, loving kindness it means loyalty steadfastness faithful love based on a promise would you would you remember my family when you come in and destroy this city and the spies say, "Yeah, we'll do that. Just don't, you know. You've got to keep your part of this deal, and, and you can't say anything about our visit and what's going to happen." And so, so they make this deal. And and here's an interesting part of the story. We we hear and read about the scarlet rope. That's the next section. Uh, the scarlet rope, verses fifteen through twenty-one, it says, "So she let them down by a rope through the window." And now, now they're escaping back to to go back to Joshua. For the house she lived in was part of the city walls. She said to them, go to the hills so the the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, then go on your way. Uh, Archaeologists tell us about 1,500 yards outside of Jericho is a land that's uh, rocky, and there's lots of of cliffs, and there's lots of caves. And she's basically saying, go hide in a cave for three days, (laughs) And and then make your way back. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, Their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath that you made us swear. Verse 21, agreed. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. What a picture that is. The scarlet cord. I mean, think about scripture and all the, the, the symbols of scripture of, you know, the, the Exodus and, and, uh, the book of Exodus and that last plague and, and what was the key to survival? You had to have the blood of the lamb on, on your doorposts and then the death angel would pass over you. And here's, here's Rahab and they say, you know what? Take that scarlet rope that we, you know, are gonna go down to escape. And I want you to hang that from the from the wall from your window. That way, when the Israelite soldiers come in to destroy the city, and and God had given them instructions because Jericho was their first battle, and it's the principle of first fruits. He's like, everything gets devoted to God. Don't take any spoils from Jericho. Um, it, it all gets destroyed. Because this is this is what God asked them to do. And so uh, the survival was a key. The red scarlet cord would identify Rahab's house as a house of safety. And this spared um, Rahab and her family, the only ones in the whole city that weren't killed by the Israeli army, was Rahab and those within her house and it's it's this wonderful picture of uh, God always has a remnant doesn't he um Noah's ark eight eight people survived the flood because of their faith and uh the passover and here in uh, the the book of Joshua we see Rahab's family being spared so the scarlet rope it, it's really a picture of of salvation isn't it of our our trust and faith is in uh, something else that's read and we're redeemed through what the the blood of the blood of Jesus. So let's look at as we conclude this, the spies report, the spies report. So here after 3 days in a cave, now they go back to camp. They go back to Joshua and uh, here's their report. When they had left, when they left, they went into the hills and stayed there 3 days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, here it is. The Lord has surely given us the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. They're basically saying, we've got this. Uh, those Canaanites are shaking in their boots because of what they've heard about our God. And uh, the Lord surely will give us victory. Victory is ours. Uh and all we need to do is go in and claim it. And so that's uh, that's the story of of uh Joshua chapter 2 and the story of Rahab and we'll see as we move into Joshua chapter 3 uh next week they they cross the Jordan and uh They're about ready to to make their first military uh, uh, victory over into the land of of Canaan. Well, let's look at some life lessons as we conclude this morning, and we're going to quickly look at four of them from from Joshua chapter 2 and uh, the story of of Rahab. Life lessons from Joshua chapter 2 and the story of Rahab. And and here's the first one. Uh, Those of us who are, are followers of Jesus, we need to... Daily give thanks to God for His amazing grace. You know, sometimes when you've been a follower of Jesus or a believer for weeks, months, years, decades, we, we, we begin to forget about God's amazing grace. Uh, that He paid a debt that we could never repay. That as the hymn writer says in, in uh, the hymn book, Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. And so we need to make a regular practice, uh, on a, I would say on a, on a daily basis, to give thanks to God for Jesus and for his amazing grace in our life. Secondly, we need to remember and learn that no one or no sin is beyond God's forgiveness. That's one of the main stories and truths out of the life of Rahab. That there's no person, there's no sin that's beyond the grace of God. That if God can save Rahab, who lived the life of a prostitute and a harlot, if God can save Moses, who was a murderer, there is no sin beyond God's grace. And there's no person that's beyond God's grace. For thirty years, I've had my pen pal Steve in Jackson Prison that committed murder, and now he's come to Jesus, and he's experienced God's amazing grace. That's the good news when we when we share Christ with others, and 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 share people who don't know much about the Bible or who God is and what kind of God He is. Some people are like, well, God can never forgive what I've done, can He? He certainly can. There's no one. Or no sin that's beyond God's grace. And the apostle Paul, when he writes in 1st Timothy chapter 2, and he's writing to his his son in the faith, Timothy, and he's just overwhelmed by God's grace in his own life, and he he, he says, "Um, I'm so thankful that God put me into ministry. This is 1st Timothy 1. Even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I mean, he was, he was pulling Christians out of their homes and taking them to Jerusalem and, and putting them in prison. I was shown mercy. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the chief. <laughs> in Paul's eyes, you're like, I, I'm sinner number one. <laughs> and God forgave me. No one or no sin is beyond God's grace. So who is it in your family? Who is it in, in your sphere of influence that you, you think about and think, they'll never come to faith in Jesus. And maybe we've stopped witnessing and maybe we've stopped praying for them and, and kind of written them off. We need to remember, no one is beyond God's offer of salvation and God's grace. Number three, one of the evidences of genuine conversion in a person's life. So what are, the, what are the marks? What are some signs that a person has truly been born again? One of the evidences of genuine conversion is a concern for the spiritual welfare of others. Now that's a mark that a person's truly been born again. And we see it in the in the story here in, in Joshua uh, chapter 2 when Rahab says to the spies, uh, I'm a believer in Yahweh. I'm a follower of God. But guess what? Uh, would it be okay if, if I go and talk to my family about what's going to happen? Would it, would it be okay if, if uh, I bring my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and, and their family, can they come into this house of safety? She wasn't just concerned about herself. She was concerned about the welfare and the safety and the lives of others. So the book of First John gives us some litmus tests of uh, whether a person is been born again. There, there, there are three of them. There's the doctrinal test. A person that comes to faith in Jesus must understand who Jesus is. That's very clear. You must understand he is who he claimed to be. He is the, the Son of God. He's, he, he is the Savior of the world. But secondly, then, there's the moral test. And First John says, a person that's born again, not that they never sin, we all continue to sin, but there's not this pattern of continually sinning and sinning and sinning in their life. There's going to be a, a conviction of the Spirit of God in their life. And then there's the social test. A person that's been born again, what, loves the brethren. They have a genuine love and concern for what? Other people. In the body of Christ. And, uh, and so Rahab, uh, shows an evidence of faith in Christ. Faith in Yahweh. Why? Because she said, I'm concerned about my family. And it was Rahab's faith that not only saved her life, but saved the life of her family. Her mother, her father, and her extended family. Alright, let's look at, uh, last one. And it's, uh, number four here from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And this is a biblical principle that we find in the New Testament. It's simply this, the individual who has been forgiven much loves much. The individual who has been forgiven much loves much. That's basically what Jesus says in Luke Chapter Seven. Let me give you the background of this this um, passage that Jesus is um, uh, having a dinner, and uh, one of the Pharisees that invited him for dinner and while they're having Jesus is having dinner with the Pharisees, uh, Luke says, "A sinful woman comes in. A sinful woman comes in while he's eating, and she has an alabaster jar of perfume. And she's weeping, and she's anoints Jesus' feet with the perfume, and the tears are flowing off her her cheeks. And uh, the the Pharisees are looking at this, and they're saying, "If Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, she went, he wouldn't let this happen." And so Jesus tells a story. Uh, Simon, he says, "I have something to tell you." This is Luke seven forty, and he tells a story about two people who owe money. One person owes 500 denarii, 500 days' wages. The other person owes 50 denarii, 50 days' wages. And the person that is owed the money forgives both of them. And Jesus then asks Simon a question. He says, uh, basically, he's saying, uh, which of those two will love him more? The one who's been forgiven 50 denarii? or the one who's been forgiven 500 denarii? And Simon answers, and he says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And he says, Jesus says, you're right. You've judged correctly. And then he goes on to to take them to task because he says, I came to this house. No one really greeted me. No one really did these things. But this woman whose sins have been uh, many and, and came in and she anointed my feet with oil and she's crying and she's she's ministering And he says to her, uh, verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And uh, the people there are like, wow, we thought only God could forgive sins. And they're right, only God can. They just didn't know in their little narrow theological thinking that Jesus was God. And So here's the principle. The individual who's been forgiven much loves much. I remember hearing... Dr. Joe Stoll was president of the Moody Bible Institute for many years and uh, Cornerstone University, and he just passed the baton to a new uh, new president. And uh, Dr. Stoll's um, moving into retirement mode. But I remember hearing Dr. Stoll at Moody Pastors Conference, and he had had the privilege of going to New York City, and um, He's speaking at uh, Jim Cymbala's church, which is right in the heart of, of Brooklyn. And uh, uh, Carol Cimbala, uh leads this uh, nationally worldwide known choir, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. It's about 50 or 60 strong. And they were they were singing that morning, and and Doctor Stoll's watching uh, uh, watching these people uh, singing, and as they're singing about God's grace, all of a sudden he notices the light shining on their their faces, and he notices that in a lot of uh, them, as they're singing, tears are beginning to stream down their cheeks as they sing about the grace of God. And the reason that was is that many of those people in the heart of Brooklyn had been forgiven and saved out of a horrific lifestyle. Many of them had been in the the pathway and profession of Rahab. And as they sang about God's grace and they sang about forgiveness, they were so overwhelmed with God's love that, that the tears began to flow down their cheeks. The Bible says the individual who has been forgiven much loves much. And so this morning we might be sitting here thinking, well, you know, I, I mean, I've never really committed any, like, big-time major sins. Uh, you know, maybe a little white lie shading the truth like Rahab did every now and then, but, but you know, I've never done anything really horribly wrong. Well, if you've read the, the book of Matthew and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus elevated sin from the act to the motive and the thought life. So he says murder isn't just about physically killing somebody, but murder begins in the heart. So if you have hatred toward your brother, guess what? You're guilty of murder in God's eyes. That adultery just isn't the physical act, but adultery is also a matter of the heart. So if you've ever looked lustfully at a woman in your heart, guess what? You've committed adultery. Adultery. And all of a sudden, Jesus raises the bar, raises the standard, and realized it's not just the act, but it's also the motive. It's also what's in our heart. Whoever's been forgiven much loves much. I started to think and do a little math in my own life from 66 years old and I so, said, well, let's say I started sinning when I was six. And I'm sure I started a lot earlier than that. But I just started to do the math. Okay, six, 60 years. Let's say, and this is being very generous, I sin once a day. And I'm sure it's much more than that. But 60 times 365, that's 21,900 sins just in my life. God says you're forgiven, paid in full. Well, the story of Rahab is the story of God's amazing grace. And what I want us to do this morning is just to get a, a new fresh glimpse of who he is, what Christ has done for us, and to be again amazed by his grace. Let's, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for this story. Uniquely put in the book of Joshua of a Canaanite prostitute by the name of Rahab who came to faith in the true God Yahweh and rescued not only her life, but the life of her family. And Lord, we're thankful for your grace in our life. Thank you for the grace of God that is greater than all of our sin. Lord, thank you that there's no sin that's beyond your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that if some of us have kind of written somebody off or stopped praying for somebody, Lord, that we would make that recommitment and renewal to continue to pray for them because no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. And then, Lord, we're thankful for your grace in our life, the grace of God, God's riches at Christ's expense that paid in full our sin debt. And so we thank you and we love you and we pray that uh, the way we live our lives today and in the coming uh, weeks will evidence our love and gratitude for all that you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.